you're in Berlin for the summer. Yes. Uh, why? Um, well, I guess a few reasons. It's always a, a big schlep to get over the Atlantic uh, and expensive and a lot of organi organizing. And it just happened that this summer I had a bunch of different projects in Europe somewhere. I had a concert in France. I had some courses and festivals I wanted to go to in Germany. So it just made sense to sublet my apartment in Manhattan and relocate for the summer. We we also we also talked about this the other day at a bar that you you were probably through subletting your apartment. Right. And moving here. I guess not counting the plane tickets. You're saving money because it's so cheap here and it's so fucking expensive. Believe it or not, I think you could even include the plane tickets and that statement would still be true that uh, the rent difference is so big that I'm um, I think I'm actually paying for my travel out of the sublet. Okay, so what are the projects? Um so First, I had a premiere in Paris with a very young group called Le Balcon. Um, there are some people I knew who were studying at the um, National Conservatory in Paris when I was there a few years ago, and they've been starting this ensemble and doing some interesting concerts. And they asked me and a couple of other American composers to write new pieces for them. Um, yeah, I, I guess that they just happened to know us um, through different different ways, and maybe they were planning to do this Feldman and Beckett performance, and that gave them the idea to do a kind of American show. But the third living composer involved is named Phil Niblock, who's a downtown New York composer. He's of a different generation, but um, he's still totally energetic. He's still kind of a soldier. A lot of people that age who are come to be established, like they don't stick around for the whole concert. Mm -hmm. They're kind of diplomats, mm -hmm. I see, like uh, mm -hmm. of the older generation. But he still really kind of is into it and will like sit through like a four hour long concert of a really difficult piece mm -hmm. and still be and still be into it. I guess he's in a way he's got to because his pieces can have one note or chords sustained for 20 minutes or that's so. That's true. That's so true. If he expects people to sit through his pieces. But I think in a way that's also how Juan Pablo knew him because he is just a personality that everybody in New York gets to know and... Phil Niblock. Phil Niblock and has good feelings about. And he has a series of concerts in his loft. And so I think Juan Pablo somehow, um, he's a Colombian, he's from Bogota, um, living in Paris. But at some point he came through New York and... Phil just invited him to come to his studio and play some music. And I think maybe for Juan Pablo, the, these were the people he knew in New York. And so he asked us all to write a piece for this concert to accompany Feldman. Yeah. And it was a really nice experience. As I said, we weren't trying to write music that would fit together, but I think somehow it actually did make a quite coherent image. Okay. And it, and it, and it worked with the concert went well. I thought so. I, I enjoyed it. And I think, it's funny that when you're in the middle of a scene, like let's say in New York, it's hard to group everything into a single functional entity and see how people might look at it from outside. But I think that participating in this concert gave me a little bit of an idea how a Parisian or European audience or group of new music listeners might perceive the whole New York scene as one thing rather than all the different things that we usually fight about and argue about. But the whole New York scene wasn't represented in that, con in fair, that concert. Very, and, very fair point. <laughs> and, and if they had programmed some of the, you know, some of the post-minimal people, sure, sure. then it, they would have gotten a very, very different picture of what sure. uh, that's, New York. That's another good point. And, yeah, and they're a big, part, they're a big uh, part of the scene in yeah, New York. That's right. No, this, th you're right. This is not at all 
representative of the New York scene, but maybe we could say it's one vision of a New York scene or something like that. You know, I just have no idea what's going on in Paris. If they had brought in some of the post-minimal composers, how do you think the reaction would have been if you had to guess? I mean, I should probably talk to a Parisian (laughs) about this, but... I would guess that people would have actually been a little surprised because I think that actually is music that is not very well known in Paris, for example. Um, I mean, of course, they know big names, like they know John Adams. They certainly know Steve Reich very well. I'm talking about but, young people, people but, people our age. Exactly. I bet that they don't know many young composers who are working in that kind of group. And so probably people would have been a bit surprised. I think in a way, the three composers that we already talked about, probably that's also a kind of American music that people in Paris can easily get their minds around. It's really different from what they do, but it also somehow relates to the way that they are used to thinking about music. Yes, exactly. And I think exactly. that maybe some younger, yeah, I think post-minimal is a good, a good label. Some younger post-minimal kinds of composers might be so far from the way people in Paris usually work that people would really be a little bit shocked and unsure how to deal with it. But that music still works on a level where it's not difficult to decode. Yeah, I mean, they would be able to make uh, semantic sense of it. Well, that's a really interesting question. On some level, I agree with you. But on another level, for one thing, I can pretty much guess that most of the audience members for this concert were people who had some new music connection. Um, I think there were a lot of friends of the ensemble, friends of players in the ensemble, this ensemble only plays new music and they only play amplified. It's part of their philosophy. So they already have a kind of repertoire. And um, I bet that their listeners come with a certain expectation for how the music they play might sound. And so in that sense, I think that the cultural differences involved with listening to, let's say, a more kind of experimental, if we can call it that, vocabulary like I have or like Phil Niblock has, and a more post-minimal vocabulary, which of course is very well represented in New York. I think that it actually in some ways might be harder for the Parisians to understand, in quotation marks, that music just because there are so many shared cultural assumptions that they don't have. So I would say, of course, we hear this conversation in New York and everywhere all the time that which kind of music is understandable which kind of music can a listener relate to easily. But I think that there are lots of cultural factors that are hard to tease apart in in terms of just semantics or just uh, cognitive issues. Does that make sense? Uh, Yeah. yeah, It's, I I almost feel like they would under the, the, the question is for them if they're, if they're not going to understand something like that is, isn't what's going on. I don't understand what's going on. I think the question for them is always a little bit, why would you do that? That's a good, good and, translation. Uh, yeah. Probably hard for them to understand why someone would uh, write music like that, right. especially in a place that has had uh, a, like a really strong, uh, unique narrative. You know, it, it's, it's funny that we're having this long conversation about how French people see American music since, as you said, we don't really know, but it's also a kind of interesting thing to think about. I found when I was living in Paris, because I was there for two years, I was often really surprised at how such seemingly different music when you're in the middle of the scene in America could actually cohere to a French listener. So what I'm thinking of, for example, is um, some of the composers 
now if I go back to a little bit older generation that are played the most in Paris from the United States, definitely Steve Reich has played a lot. Um, he's kind of an American hero almost in the French scene. Um, he's an American hero everywhere. Though. Well, indeed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but yeah. let's say there are some other American heroes who the French would not relate to, but they really do relate to Steve Reich. And I think that has something to do with the fact that his work, especially in the early days, had such a kind of hard line experimental dimension. And I think that the French really relate to that. Um, you know, if we think about the very early pieces, uh, you know, four organs, four marimbas I'm, uh, come out come out to show them those sorts of things. Pendulum music is... Sure, pendulum <laughs> music. That's a good example. And gravity, it's pretty... Yeah, that's going to work. Right, yeah, right, yeah. right. So there's Reich. Um, but then another American composer who gets played very, very often in Paris is Elliot Carter. Um, and I suppose that has something to do with his friendship with Boulez. It has something to do with the fact that he spent a lot of time in Europe a long time ago in the 50s and 60s. Um, nevertheless, in America, of course, for our generation... It's no problem to enjoy both of those composers' work. But if we think back a generation or two, um, those are some pretty bloody battles that are behind us between people who would be really interested in Elliot Carter's music and people who would be really interested in Steve Reich's music. Um, but I think if you ask a European what they like about those two composers or why they would perhaps program on the, them on the same concert, they might say something, this is just a hypothetical, but they might say something about oh, American music is very concerned with time. It's very concerned with rhythmic repetition and it's very concerned with process. And for them, Carter and Reich would, it, would embody all of those things. It was really probably good for me to be able to see some of those connections, which are hard to see when you're in America. Yeah, well, I mean, that's a very similar philosophy, but their approach to exactly what they're going to do with it are miles and miles apart. You know, sure. I, I, I think for... Uh, a composer, a, a composer like Steve Reich, it's uh, um, there's no subtext mm -hmm. to what's actually going on. You know that that's the philosophy. Carter's music, maybe you can hear that a little bit as far as time goes, the way he's treating time. Mm -hmm. But the, this idea of repetition, everything's very, very deeply buried behind. Uh, that's um, that's true. Uh, the surface. That's true. But yeah. that's interesting that they're actually able to go beyond this, uh, beyond the surface of the music and see that uh, there's there's something there, American combining the both of them. Yeah. Whereas we we take it maybe we take it for granted or we don't even think about it because it's just what we're uh, brought up in as part of our our identity. So we don't see that at all. We just yeah you know, we just see it as these guys were the opposite of one another. Yeah, and we know so many people who have some personal connection to one side or the other or maybe somebody studied with one of those composers or studied with another one and i think it's interesting to see what happens if you can take all of that personal history away and just try to hear the music and they're more they're more objective than us perhaps when it comes to american perhaps. composers yeah yeah you liked it in paris or yeah i i had a wonderful experience there um my experience was definitely colored by where i was which was at ircom um at the music technology research institute for listeners who don't know that yeah, abbreviation, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, which is a really special place in the whole world, let alone in Paris. So I'm sure my perspective was a little bit distorted by being down there in the in the basement under the Pompidou Center with that particular perspective. What's that building like? I hear that. I, I, I hear it actually still looks like it's from the 70s. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's an accurate statement. Yeah. It, it actually has a, a newer wing that was built by Renzo Piano. It's really beautifully designed. Um, 
Uh, I'm not sure which parts actually are from the 70s and which are kind of cute retro submarine uh, architecture idea, but either way, it does all fit into this neat uh, image. So it went right from the 70s and, and they didn't even update anything. And then by the time they redid the place... It was already like a 70s flashback thing yeah, they were going for. Like the whole process vintage. of the 70s is old and stupid. They skipped over. <laughs> and now and and now you can't tell the difference between the actual place from the 70s or the retro feel sure. that they're going for. Sure. <laughs> well, or maybe, I mean, speaking of piano, I mean, look at the Pompidou Center. Like that is a landmark of 70s architecture, but somehow it does actually seem pretty current or it seems pretty hip today still. Yeah, it's true. Um but yeah, so that whole th that whole image maybe we could use as a kind of metaphor for Ircom, this this wonderful utopian seventies idea of scientific progress in the arts and this sort of you know the main concert space at Ircom, the Espace de Project Projection, is also a, a wonderful relic of that kind of idea. You can really you see all the cables hanging everywhere, and you see the speakers hanging on these metal scaffolds and there is this acoustically adjustable wall where somebody presses a button and the whole wall has panels that flip around to change their acoustic properties but when when you hear or see them do that you do have the sense of this kind of 1970s space shuttle that's a little bit old-fashioned but at the same time uh really futuristic <laughs> that, that, that's amazing so it's a 70s version of the future now <laughs> that's right <laughs> that's right and that maybe just happens to be a kind of world that i relate to really well um i mean that notion of scientific progress as the way forward for humanity and maybe even the way forward in the arts which maybe we could say has become a little bit less attractive to some later generations even to our generation yeah um yeah. But there's something about that that I really relate to personally. Who knows why? My mother's a scientist. Maybe that has something to do with it. Um, and I studied science when I was younger. But that spirit is really intact at IRCOM. And when I first showed up there, it was really delightful to me because in a way I had almost felt from my education in America, like people weren't allowed to think that way anymore. What did you, where, where were you taught and how were you, it depends where you were taught in the States depending on what uh, what university or conservatory you're at, they can be teaching you all types of scientific uh, methods of putting, of putting music together. You know, in a university like uh, Columbia, which is one of the, you know, more well-known ones, they have French professors that Very worked true. at, yeah, yeah, that, and both, both of them worked at IRCOM, I think. So it, it, it depends, it depends where you're getting your education in the States. Where did you study? I began in New York where I was raised. Um, and then I went to college at Harvard, which at the time was not a very technologically intricate place. Nowadays, it does have a, a pretty nice studio. Um, uh, but when I was there, I was working with Mario Davidovsky, who, of course, had come from that era at Columbia that you just mentioned, the, the Columbia Princeton studio. But by the time that I worked with him, he was mostly writing acoustic music. Um, then after that, uh, well, I spent a couple of years in England, which is another story. But after that, I went to graduate school at UC Berkeley, which, if anything, is uh, very consistent with IRCOM in terms of having a very technologically forward-looking 
point of view, um, there's a music technology research center there called the CINMAT, C-N-M-A-T. So obviously I didn't come to Paris totally cold in terms of knowing about that kind of perspective and that kind of attitude. But I would nevertheless say that in California, maybe there's a little bit less of, I, or at, at least as I remember it at the time of being a graduate student, there's a little bit less of a sense of technology is the answer and maybe a little bit more of a sense of technology is something we can use, but at the same time fear or uh, be careful about. Did you wholeheartedly believe that at one point, that technology was the answer? And do you still believe it now? <laughs> um, I'm, I'm, I still do have a lot of sympathy for that attitude of music as research, maybe if we can even call call it that in such a general fashion and maybe research that involves technology or even research that doesn't involve technology, like research in instrumental playing techniques, research in improvisation techniques. Yeah. Um, so that as a general rubric is something that I still really believe in, at least in terms of my creative work. At the same time, I think that I've learned over the years that uh, one technological solution is not necessarily better than another. I hate to bring it back to this, but it's like technology and scientific research is based on the notion that there's a that that there's a way to do something and there's a right way to do something, and that doesn't work at all in the humanities. You know, it it works when you're doing research and you're trying to you know genetically engineer a mosquito to not carry the malaria virus. You can you can say, hey, I'm right. Mm-hmm. here because um, um because the problem gets solved but i don't know if that's uh if that's true for well uh music it's interesting that one place that i think i i've adjusted my perspective is not in the way that we look at musical research but in the way we look at scientific research that a postmodern kind of perspective again to throw around some some big big labels that uh maybe are a little too big but um would maybe tell us that that isn't even true of science, that re- decisions that a scientific researcher makes aren't only based on objective factors and there are cultural factors that determine what kind of research somebody's going to do and even what kind of answers they might look for and what kind of hypotheses they might allow to enter into their consideration. So maybe maybe science is a little bit more like the humanities in some ways too. Yes, there are cultural factors that uh, cultural and economic factors that make sure. scientists choose what they're going to research and what questions they're going to sure. uh, ask themselves. You know, just ask the guy who made Viagra. <laughs> <You know? Sure. laughs> like, he's coming in tomorrow. Okay? <laughs> yeah. But once that hypothesis has been put out there, uh, at that point, you can qualify it in a way of, did we solve the problem? Was I right? Was mm-hmm. I wrong? Mm-hmm. And I still don't know if that can be applied to art music. Yeah, I, I don't know if, if there's an answer to that either. But one thing that I did remember realizing, that I did remember hitting me quite strongly when I first came to Europe, and in, in, in my case that was to Paris, was the feeling that there was, perhaps uh, consciously or not, more of scientific research-like perspective toward music, not even just at IRCAM, but among composers all over. And what I mean by that, maybe it's not what you were just saying, maybe it's not objective criteria for evaluating the success of a piece, um, because of course that's a much more problematic concept. But the idea of sharing information between a lot of people very quickly and producing a kind of collaborative community where 
ideas uh, flow very, very freely and very fast, which is something that in America I associated primarily with scientific researchers. Um, but in Europe, I found was something I found among the composer community. So even people who weren't at a university, people who were at the conservatory in Paris or other non-university arts institutions, I found were taking a really great responsibility upon themselves to try to go to lots and lots of concerts and to hear lots of music that might or might not interest them just to get ideas and evaluate them and respond to them. And in a way, I felt like that community functioned a little bit the way that I had previously only imagined a scientific community did. Do you think that's the same here in Berlin? I do. I, I think that in, I think I found that in Germany in general as well, maybe, maybe not unique to Berlin, but um, just, just to take an example, um, this past year I went to the Donaueschingen Festival yeah. in the southeast, uh, the southwest of Germany, and I was again really blown away by that feeling of a research community, for lack of a better term. There were all sorts of major figures who were just there to listen to the music, not because they had a commission. Wolfgang Riem was just there to hear the concerts. Um, Mark Anzai was just there to hear the concerts, and. I don't know if I'm being too harsh on America, but it's somehow harder for me to imagine over there this feeling of personal responsibility to hear what one's colleagues are doing and to respond to it. It really, Dunawashington almost felt to me a little bit like a scientific conference in that way. If you're if you're in it and active uh, and an active participant then it feel then it it's a it's a great it's a great feeling because yeah. it's because because it feels like the community has momentum mm -hmm. and is interested in what what another is doing and also makes you more active not yeah. not i mean more active but get it you know it makes you more inspired that everybody's putting their head together and feeling something as a community of mm -hmm. participants mm -hmm. but my 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 question is how much of an effort does the community put forth to communicate outside of the participants of it? Oh, well, that's, a, that's an interesting question. I'm, I was told that Dano Eschingen is filled with non-composers who book weeks in advance and that it's actually quite well known to non-new music specialists in at least that part of Germany. Did you meet them? I didn't, so I can't, I can't confirm that from personal experience. In Berlin, I do have a feeling that a lot of events that we might go to have people who aren't necessarily specialists attending, maybe because there's a connection to an art scene, to a gallery scene. I mean, a lot of the improvisation concerts that we might see in Berlin do seem to have a visual art community connection. That's, that's true. A lot of the scenes here kind of uh, flow into one another in a very nice way. Yeah. yeah. Just one, one other thing about Dano Eschingen, though, and again, I don't know who exactly would have been listening, but the whole festival that's three solid days of new music premieres is broadcast on Southwest German radio. Yeah, no, I mean, I um, listen to it. Yeah, yeah well, yeah. so I've we met... listen, but I'm guessing there must be some listeners out there who aren't specialists like us or else the radio station couldn't justify totally bombarding their entire programming for a weekend with that music. But it would be really interesting to know who the listeners are and how they respond. I'm just interested in the gap of how we perceive ourselves within the community and then how someone who who's an open-minded person walking in parse all that information and make sense of it. Sure. Uh, we, we know how to make sense of it because we've been in it for so long and uh, we know we know the jargon both 
uh, verbal and musical mm -hmm. uh, that we use. So it's easier for us to understand what we're trying to do and what, what's going on, much like it's easier for uh, a scientist to understand why someone's doing a certain experiment than someone who's just walking into a lab uh, sure. and, you know, and, and sees what's going on. And then I'm just, I, I just often wonder how we're perceived by those people who stumble upon Donesh again or, or listen to it every year, but don't have time to read perspectives of new music <laughs> right. or, uh, or everyone's uh, doctoral dissertation on, right, right. Uh, on spectrographs. Right. Again, I'll to hopefully not go too far with the American self, self, uh, self critique, but I have found often in my experience in France and Germany that let's say music journalism or program notes or documents about music, written documents that are, that are geared or aimed toward a more non-musically trained public are written at a level that in America, in the United States, I would associate with the music uh, university academy in terms of terminology, language. It seems, and I, I guess I'll put, put trust in these journalists and, and musicologists who are writing these documents, that they expect a very high level of understanding from their non-musician listeners, um, whether it's the radio listener listening audience or the program note reading audience. So it seems like the whole level of discourse is really very high in Western Europe. You know, it is, but I have to say a lot of the people that I see at these uh, concerts who aren't in music journalism and um, it's not that they don't get anything out of the music, but they're just not experiencing it on on that level. And what they get out of it is not nearly as uh, specific and detailed as the discourse that goes on between us. Yeah, I mean, maybe we can separate the question. On the one hand, it's probably clear that non-trained, non-specialist listeners are going to perceive things in a different way from we are. And I don't think there's any any way we could argue around that. But then maybe another question is, do they perceive in a less valid way or a less rewarding way? And when I think about my own work, I again, I'm sure that different listeners with different kinds of training are going to experience things in different ways. But at least for me as a composer, I'd like to think that non-initiate listeners who are maybe having a different experience from my music nerdy buddies, nevertheless are having a really intense and interesting experience. Um, which they might describe in totally different terms. And I wonder if that could describe some of the arts students who might drop into a Berlin improv concert and aren't going to be, you know, looking at the particular scratch bowing playing technique the player is using the way that I will because I want to research that for a new piece, but they'll have some totally other perception of it that maybe also makes a lot of sense. It comes down to the question of who are you doing it for? If someone without any knowledge is walking into uh, a concert, again, assuming that they're an open-minded person and they're willing to suspend for a moment their opinion on what music should be and, and be challenged, are you writing it for that person or are you writing it for the initiates, like mm -hmm. uh, you were saying? And if you're writing it for the initiates, I feel like there's a, uh, the chance of you completely missing the mark of the guy walking in is multiplied exponentially sure i mean of course there's the age age old question if we can somehow be writing for both kinds of people or different kinds of people but maybe as i was saying in different ways so you wrote a piece oh right yeah, yeah. <laughs> on another subject yeah yeah i don't i still haven't figured out 
how to transition. Sure. Yeah. Well, I guess somehow we didn't end up talking about this particular piece just coincidentally so far. So yeah. So we can bring it in now. Yeah. So tell me, tell me about it. Um, so the piece that I brought, it's a piece that I wrote about two years ago, and this is right when I first moved back to New York from Paris. It was a, a commission for a group that is very active in New York and people I've known for a while called Yarn Wire. That's, it's a quartet. It's uh, two pianos and two percussion. Um, and the players are Russell Greenberg, Laura Barger, Ian Antonio, and Jacob Rodebeck. And they're part of this handful of New York or Northeastern ensembles that I think are really exciting at the moment. I know that you know a lot of similar players in New York. They're, they, you know, they've been around for they've been around for a long time, and and they have quite a bit of albums. And the members have changed pretty mm -hmm. drastically. Mm -hmm. I don't know how many original mm, members are still in it, mm -hmm. but they have a really good reputation. But they, I mean, here's a funny anecdote. They they sent in their CD to the Howard Stern show. I no, I, I, I swear I swear to God, and Howard Stern went on like a two day rant about how they sucked. <laughs> but it, wow. they can it's on their website. You can get it. Uh, you can get it online. It's like Neat. Howard Howard Stern. <laughs> it's like Howard Stern's reaction to improvisational new music. Mm -hmm. Wow, we should all be so lucky. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so so Yarnwire is doing a lot of interesting stuff in New York and I had wanted to write something with them for a while and it just happened to work out perfectly that I came back to New York right at the moment when they needed a piece uh, I wanted to do a piece with electronics they do, they do a lot of playing with electronics and they're one of the relatively few ensembles at least in terms of the United States that shows up with their own gear with their own microphones they know how to use Max MSP they know how to run a mixing board so they are ready to do that. And I was there for the first performance, but they've done the piece already without me where they didn't even have an electronic engineer. They just, well, like a band, they they showed up and they organized their own electronics and that was just part of the performance. Wow. I Of course, I think, I hope that that's something that more and more groups are going to be capable of and interested in doing because uh, it's great when they don't have to have the extra expense or logistical problem of getting an engineer or getting the composer to come with them to do a concert with electronics. Also, the electronics of this is, 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 is not so uh, difficult. Yeah. I mean, nowadays, I would, I would say that. I mean, the actual processes, the live electronic patch, which is programmed in Max MSP, is pretty sophisticated. Well, I, I mean, I don't, know, don't want to be uh, pompous, but I mean, it's, it's pretty heavy like it, it involves a lot of calculation and a lot of processing but the setup itself is really not so bad they just need a few microphones a few loudspeakers and an interface to connect them to and a couple of midi pedals to trigger the electronic cues and you learned all this in earcam at earcom um, there's a production office filled with all the most amazing microphones you can imagine and uh, they're all there for the performances um, free for the taking uh, in New York, Yarnwire has some of their own gear, but for example, one thing that, that we had to do for this piece, I, I was working with a lot of really tiny sounds inside the pianos, so the, the lids of the pianos are removed. The four players, that is both of the pianists and both of the percussionists, all do different things inside the frame of the piano. Did this all have um, to be performed on a certain type of piano? Well, it's true that when you switch pianos, these techniques have to be readjusted because... 
certain metal bar might be in a little bit of a different location. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. But as long as there's a little bit of flexibility, I think it's transferable from piano to piano. But one thing that, that we had to do leaving the the warm world of Ircom is uh, I wanted to use some contact microphones to capture these really tiny sounds, which would have been difficult to get with regular cardioid microphone. And so I actually ended up building a couple of contact microphones, which Yarnwire, I gave, I just gave to them and they just used to perform the piece. So they're really low quality. They have a very particular sound. It's it's highly colored. So I guess what you pay for when you buy a $1,000 contact microphone instead of a $5 contact microphone is really level neutral color. But these these microphones are very highly colored. They have a very specific sound and that just became part of the sound of the piece and part of the sound of the group when they perform it. Was this performed at Earcam? No, well? um, no. It, so yeah, this is this, this was for Yarnwire. This was for Yarnwire, yeah. and they've done it in New York. They did it in Virginia, I believe. So it's uh, exclusively USA. They tour, yeah, they tour uh, with it. Tour yeah. piece. Um, but that's the interesting thing about Earcam, though, mm-hmm. is that it's hard for like these, you know, these really technologically advanced pieces are created in earcam but it is very hard for them to exist in the correct form outside of the earcam subsidized sure. have any microphone you want bubble sure so you're limiting the performance geographically in a very big mm. in a very big way unless earcam goes on you know goes on tour which which they do sometimes but i've um yarn Meyer, for example plays some work that's come out of earcam for example um uh, M by Philippe Leroux is also a two piano, two percussion, an electronics piece that he wrote at Ircom. And they just have to make the make the transfer. They have to find a way to do it. Do you think a lot of composers take that into consideration when they're writing something in Ircam that eventually, you know, if you want the thing to have legs and have a lot of performances mm-hmm. outside of Ircam, then it's almost like you cannot use all of Ircam's ridiculous resources. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I have to say, I think it's something that's not really on the minds of a lot of European composers because they haven't been faced with that situation of how you do a piece without the big studio to help you. It's something that was very much on my mind when I moved back to New York. I think it's an American thing, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but maybe one's first reaction is, oh no, there's no way that I can do as interesting stuff. But I think after thinking about it and working on this piece, I realized that, again, you know, it's not... It's not an issue of good or bad. It's just an issue of thinking about it. And I think this piece wouldn't have been as successful if I had planned it for a different setup and then had to break it down to this very transferable mobile format. Instead, it's something from the very beginning. I knew we were going to be able to perform this way or we were going to plan to perform this way. And that ended up being built into the piece. So, for example, as I was saying with these little contact microphones, if I had written the piece expecting a gorgeous Schertler transducer contact microphone sound, then I had to transfer that to a Radio Shack Piezo, I probably would have been really disappointed.
one of my first questions is why did he decide to present this material in sections? Hmm. Um, I guess it grew naturally out of the field recordings in a way because each one lasts, the original field recordings, each one lasts about one to two minutes. And I was interested in using as long stretches of, of them as possible so that in a way the field recording helped generate the form. Maybe if I had had a 10 minute field recording that I just played from beginning to end, that probably would have made a totally different piece. But with these one to two minute ones, it naturally grouped into these kinds of sections. So, so do you, do you think of this piece as you draping material over the field recordings Hmm. or do, or uh, like the, the field recordings is this structure. And then it's you decorating that already existing structure, maybe to the point where you don't even see the structure anymore. All you see is the decoration, but well, it's still there. That's a nice image because there are many sections of the piece where you don't actually hear the field recordings, but the material somehow comes from analyses of the field recordings that aren't necessarily being played at the same time. Or what happens a few times in the piece is one of those moments without a recording reappears later but that time with the with the recording accompanying it. So you might get this sculpture without the mold, but then you'll see it with its mold later. So even at the times where there aren't, where you're not hearing the recordings, maybe those, they have this ghost presence in terms of the structure, the way you just suggested. How did you pick this material for the field recording? But you said you, you just, you just said, oh, I analyzed it a certain way. Explain your analysis of it. What did you, how did I, how did you generate material from these field recordings? First, I selected the recordings I was going to use, which I had made a bunch of them on different days at different times in Paris. Um, and I chose the ones more or less that appealed to me that seemed the most coherent, that had the most interesting colors or the most varied colors between them. And then I began to try to figure out ways to, in a way, transcribe or orchestrate them for the ensemble. And the way that I do that is... I have a bank of samples from the instruments in the ensemble, from the pianos and some percussion instruments, many of which I made with the with the players in the group, with the players from Yarn Wire. And I've been working with a computer program, actually, that I learned about at IRCOM, where uh, one can take this bank of samples and analyze it according to different audio characteristics, different spectral characteristics. So there are many different parameters or characteristics, but uh, some are very traditional, like loudness, but others are more, uh, a little more subtle, like how bright a sound is, how sort of high it is on average or low it is on average. So the, the samples of the instruments are analyzed according to these criteria. And then I try to make matches to the samples, to the field recordings, to the um, ambient recordings. And so this is do you have with... a program that matches them up, or did you just did you did you analyze the field recordings? It says these are the good things about it, and then you wrote and and then you matched up with the material, or did the program literally saying you should use this material that you developed with the players with this field recording? So, some of each, actually. In some cases, the mapping is done through this computer program, so directly matching piano samples and percussion, percussion samples to the field recording as it goes by in time. Other places in the piece, I did something a little more indirect where I would take some of these audio parameters and then map them 
in a more subjective way to gestures in the instruments. So for example, some of the passages where the percussionists are tremoloing with foam mallets inside the piano strings while the pianists silently play chords. So you get a kind of uh, aura resonance of... Silently depressed Silently depressed keys. keys yeah, sorry, yeah, yeah. that's right. Silently depressed piano keys. So they open the dampers for a certain chord. And then the percussionists are able to make those strings vibrate with these foam mallets, which they actually built for the piece. We We sort of worked on them together. And in this case, I just did an analysis, a very simple analysis of the recording just to find the pitches that, according to some criteria, you hear in the recordings and then map them to this gesture. But that was, that was all. I, I sort of invented this idea of playing with the foam mallets after the fact, after I saw these analyses. And I thought, oh, it would be a nice way to express these harmonies. You're basically saying, okay, I know the computer gave me these pitches. If I just have the piano play these pitches in the normal way a pianist does, then uh, it's going to take away from my vision of the piece that the computer does not know. Right. That's a, that's a nice way of saying it. Yeah. But then sometimes the decisions get made in a sort of funny way because at the very end, you heard that the pianists do finally play on the keyboard. And my initial motivation for that was the analyses happened to get very thin at that moment in the recording. So earlier in that, the analysis of that particular field recording, the analysis generated some really big, thick chords, which sounded great with this rolled foam tremolo. Toward the end, for different reasons, because of the way the recording changed, the analysis only gave two or three pitches. And if I had tremoloed inside the piano with these foam mallets, one wouldn't have heard very much at all. It would have just been too thin. And so I thought, oh, well, I'll just have them play on the keyboard. But that ended up having a very interesting formal consequence for the piece because only at the very end of a 10-minute piece, maybe in the last minute, do the pianists finally actually play notes on the keyboard for the very first time. Unprepared notes on the Unprepared keyboard. Unprepared notes on yeah. the keyboard. And I hadn't planned that from the beginning of composing. I mean, that would have been a nice structure to think about. But it came as a kind of accident of these recordings and the way I analyzed them but it ended up becoming a very strong structural feature of the piece, at least when I hear it. And one, one thing that I like about that is if the piece began with that material, I don't think it would sound particularly historical or traditional. It just would sound like some modernish harmonies for piano. But um, I've actually had people ask me if the pianists at the end are playing a quotation from Schubert or something like that. And the answer is no. But I think that in the context of this piece, by the time the pianists actually touch the keys and play in an unprepared way, it sounds so traditional that it almost sounds like a quotation from 19th century music. And of, of course, I, I wasn't satisfied to just let it be a totally ordinary piano sound. So I actually asked the players, the, the, I didn't even know about this technique, but Laura Barger, the, one of the pianists, showed me this technique that she calls scapiamento. I think that the, the term might come from Sharino and, um, it's when you depress the piano keys halfway silently um, so it, they don't make a sound and then play the chord starting in that position. And somehow with the mechanics of a grand piano, it allows you to play a really, really quiet tone without having to press the keys very quietly. And it also produces, you were referring in a way to the, to the visual or dramatic situation, because the pianist the pianists have to take a lot of care to do this technique, to press the keys down oh, halfway. Yeah. You can see that attention visually because 
they have to sit really close to the keyboard and watch their fingers. Normally, I, I listen to a lot of composers who come out of ear cam and this very specific sound. And I'm like, oh, they did this research, or I'm sure they can talk about it in this way. And then they had the result, and the result sounds like any other piece that comes out of ear cam. But this, I had no idea there was research with this. Do you think that doing research like this on a piece and using computer programs gives you ways of thinking about things and gives you answers that you would not be able to find by yourself? And I mean something that just goes beyond pitch choices. I mean, something that goes, What? how am I going to structure this piece? Uh, what do I want people to get out of it? How do I want people to be receiving it? I mean, does it change the aesthetics of a piece doing research? For for you in general, but maybe even more before you talk about that, specifically this piece. My my easy answer is definitely. Um, and, and I feel really okay about that. I think it's something that maybe when I was being trained, I thought was a danger that using a certain kind of technology might influence the way that you made creative decisions. But undoubtedly that's true. And I think that it's something that I don't have a problem with at all, or I, I really enjoy as a composer. For example, in this idea of analyzing field recordings, I think only came to me after, in a way, I had some of the tools that allowed me to do it. Um, it's not like I somehow in, th this piece was 2009 and I started studying at come in 2007. Um, it's not like when I first showed up, I somehow plotted this vision of what I wanted to do and gradually realized it technologically, but rather I discovered different tools that I hadn't encountered before, and they definitely changed the way that I thought about writing. And in fact, this idea of analyzing samples and mapping them to other samples or to other gestures, I first um, began doing for a totally different reason. I was interested in actually mapping one instrument or one instrumental sample to another instrumental sample as a kind of uh, technique to blend or develop instrumental music. So the piece that I wrote before this, which was, um, or actually several pieces before this, which were my projects while I was studying at IRCOM, worked more with that idea of how can you take samples of a viola and translate them into a percussion gesture or translate them into a harp gesture. It was a way for you to figure out how to orchestrate. Yeah, uh, exactly. Or, you know, uh, orchestrate in a way that you, you know how to get a homogenous sound or choose to avoid a homo homogenous sound. Yeah, exactly. And it was only after I had begun exploring that technique that I thought, oh, well, what would happen if I fed in some totally different kind of recording to the process and saw what happened? And that ended up being this this kind of technique for transcribing field recordings. Does every piece you write now have some type of technology woven into it? Even yeah. if it's not using electronics, you're always is, is is there always some lesson from ear cam that you're applying into it? Yes, you know? actually that's that's true and I'm not sure if I always necessarily want the listener to know that, but I can tell you we can say a, in terms of compositional technique that I've been using electronic tools, even for acoustic pieces now. And that's been producing really interesting results for me. And I, I would even hope that a listener might not have to be conscious of that when they listen. So for example, this Baroque and Modern Instruments piece has no electronic component. There's, um, there's very slight amplification of the lute because it's such a quiet instrument, but otherwise there's no technology. Nevertheless, there are a lot of computer analyses that went into composing the piece. But I'd love it if the final result somehow 
doesn't make that clear or doesn't necessarily imply that. Was it was it difficult for you to learn how to adjust your intuition to these computer assisted compositional techniques? No, for for me it actually was a very natural and rewarding choice very much from the beginning. Um I guess it somehow fit well with the way that I like to work or the way I like to think about music. I had also, well, of course, you know well our listeners don't that when we first met in Berlin in 2008, I had been here for a semester in between my two years at IRCOM. Yes. And I remember a quotation. I, at the time, I studied composition with Wolfgang Heininger, who teaches at um, the, the Hochschule for Musik Hans Eisler. Yes. We had a lot of great conversations, and he said something that really stuck with me. He quoted Schiller. <laughs> really? A, oh, a very, God. very uh, Wolfgang Heininger thing to do. Or to, a very... to, to be like 19th century, uh, right. <laughs> 19th century philosophy. Right. And the, the translation into English, um, I believe, is people, human, men, man is most human when at play. Um, so people are the most human when at play. And I think for me, what electronics provided that I found really appealing was an environment where I could play, an environment where a lot of materials were right in front of me and totally available and totally detailed and intricate and concrete, I think maybe it's the most important thing. And I could just begin arranging them in a very intuitive, even naive kind of way, in a way that is more difficult for me, at least, when I sit down with a blank piece of paper and a pencil, um, where I have to somehow formulate materials from a completely imaginary standpoint. Well, it's not, it's not, it doesn't have to be a blank piece of paper and a pencil. It could be you and a piano. True. So there are other I mean, ways that's to play. A toy. Yeah. I mean, and, uh, you know, electronics is a toy. I think, I think maybe what you mean is that certain types of uh, technologies are better toys for you to explore your imagination with. But sure. that's not certainly the case for me who's having trouble working garage band right now. <laughs> you know? Right. I guess yeah. I guess there are yeah. many different possible choices of toys to play with and you think people at ear camp think of it like toys like we you know i'm going to try this now i'm going to try this or they're or they take it much more seriously and then it's these are these are the tools for building and this is what we build with it how do, how do you think they think about it probably on most days people would not describe it in a playful way but nevertheless this idea of having a tool or an object and interrogating it rather than this maybe more romantic in the in the kind of common common speech idea of a composer imagining something perfectly formed in his head i do think that that's an attitude that a lot of people at ircom share um that technology is somehow something that rather than just the the isolated egotistical composer just imagining technologies that he needs rather tools that a composer or a researcher looks into and studies and turns around and turns I, upside down. I often think, and stop me if I'm wrong, because this is only how I imagine it. I've never even been to Earcom, but I've known a lot of composers who have come out of there. And for me, it seems like they come in with that idea that you just described, and like they're the isolated <laughs> composer, they have the idea, and they just need the tools to realize it. And they do not realize how much those tools are guiding them mm, mm -hmm. uh, to the point where it's a very homogenous style that comes, mm, out, comes mm -hmm. out of there. And they think this is the tools and this is how we use it. And this is my idea. And I'm going to use the tools to uh, get this idea across. And then people may come in with very, very different ideas, mm -hmm. 
but the uh, but the technology and the type of way they use the technology is always is always guiding them towards the same hmm. uh, towards the same place. And that's kind of a that's a little bit of a problem I have out of a lot of the people that come out of that um, that that come out of that place. They don't realize that if you're not careful, if you take the technology for granted, then you're going to end up sounding a certain way, which is happens to be cool. I mean, I like the ear cam. Mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. like the ear cam sound, but it's something that can limit identity. But if you go into the thing, like these are a bunch of toys and I'm going to screw around <laughs> with them and now I don't like this toy and wow, look what I did here is not weird. Mm-hmm. Then I think that's a good attitude mm-hmm. to have at a, you know, to have at a place you know, that is the FAO Schwartz of sound. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's a nice description. Yeah. Um, it makes me think of something that I, I bet that you've heard, or I've certainly heard, or even maybe said myself at times when, when people reminisce about the beginnings of electronic music, um, thinking of Stockhausen in the studio in Cologne or Milton Babbitt in the Princeton, Columbia Princeton studio. Very often I've heard people say that the sound world or the creative decisions that they made were actually more memorable or more successful or had a stronger identity than a lot of composers who work today with technology who have so much more powerful tools and so much more available to them. And whether you agree with that or not, maybe one reason for that is that Babbitt or Stockhausen or different composers of that era had such limited technological means that they had no choice but to treat them as toys the way we were just describing. They had to turn them upside down and twist them around and look at them in different ways. There was just no opportunity to sit back in your chair and think, oh, what technology will I use for this moment in the piece? Which one will I use for that moment? Because They're like, oh, don't break. That's, that's right. They just had break. those sign tone yeah. generators and yeah. those uh, filters. It, it, I mean, obviously, that's not how I work. I work with a computer and it's all digital and I can go download whatever program I want tomorrow. But I've, at least as a composer, found it more rewarding to take a few tools and try to turn them around and get into their internal limitations and internal weirdnesses instead of sitting with my blank page and imagining one tool for one yeah, moment I mean, and one no, for another. There, there's no idea of you're using that right or you're using that wrong as long as you're happy with the result of it. Yeah. I Another connected phenomenon that I benefited from really greatly at IRCOM and at CINMAT when I was there before that is I think that if you are working closely with technological researchers, that's another way that you're almost guaranteed that you're not going to slip into cliches or you're not going to lose your personal identity because in discussing how a tool works with a researcher or with a developer, you're automatically going to learn all sorts of intricate details and find out all sorts of great uh, unexpected corners that you might not have known if you just downloaded a program and used it. Do those researchers and specialists appreciate the corners and quirks of the programs that they're using? Or they're like, this is how you do it, and these are the details, and now you know the details, so you can do it perfectly? I'm sure that it depends on the researcher, but um, while I w- when I was at IRCAM, I ended up communicating most closely with one researcher um, named Demo Schwartz, who definitely was of uh, the former variety. He was really... He had built this very intricate and rich tool, but he was really, really interested in hearing from different composers totally unexpected ways to use it that he had maybe not even thought of when he built the tool. And his reaction was always really positive in terms of, oh, wow, I had never thought about that as a possible direction. Let's see if we can push that farther. Maybe I can then analyze and revise some of the tool 
so that you can go even further in that direction. Definitely no attitude of, oh, that's not the right way to do it. How does a researcher at EarCam develop a specific identity? Or is that something they don't even struggle with? Well, it, it's an interesting question because, of course, that model of EarCam and researchers and composers is something that's been criticized, talked about by a lot of a lot of people. And many of the, re the researchers come from different backgrounds. Some of them are composers. Some of them are improvisers. Some of them are performers of acoustic instruments. Some are performers of electronic instruments. I think, at least in terms of the places where I thought that the situation, that the relationships were working the most successfully, was in a place where researchers and composers behaved like a kind of artistic collaborator. So almost the way that a composer and a really good performer can collaborate on a piece or a composer and a choreographer can collaborate on a piece. A researcher is part of the creative team producing the piece, but has a different role and a different identity from the composer, but doesn't deserve any more or less credit for being part of this big production. And that was something, that was another thing that as an American was a pleasant surprise coming to Earcom. I had the feeling that there were many people working together toward a common goal to produce a piece of music. Whereas in the United States, it often feels like a composer wants to produce a piece of music and enlists help from lots of other people to do it. But there's not a sense of a collaborative creation with a lot of different people doing different jobs. But that kind of goes against what you were saying before, that you think a lot of composers think of themselves as like singular artists going into ear cam. So do they uh, do those type of people come up into problems when they realize that they're in, uh, that it's not about them, that it's more about a collaboration with a researcher? Well, maybe maybe a composer who has that way of looking at things interacts with a researcher in a different way, and I'm sure that affects the artistic product. I think a lot of composers maybe show up at Earcom with that idea, but then realize there are all these really cool researchers to talk to and then change the way they think about it. There's also, I'm sure, a humbling process that comes in when they have to, uh, when, they don't, when they realize they don't know anything about how the technology works. But one thing that, that helps a lot is the attitude of the researchers who are really excited to work with composers. I mean, not that I've ever encountered this in my own life, but rather than composers knocking on researchers' door and the researchers kind of sighing and wondering how long they actually have to deal with the composer's annoying questions until they can go and do something else they're more interested in. Instead, the researchers are really excited about how their tool can be built into a piece or can be built into a concert or can become part of somebody's artistic project. And that encouragement, that positive attitude definitely translates to to the composer in terms of giving him or her a, a more collaborative attitude. Well, it sounds like a good environment. Definitely. Yeah. Every time EarCam comes up, at a festival or I, I meet somebody who did that. I'm always so interested about what the, in my head, sometimes it can be a, a creativity killer. Mm -hmm. uh, but then, uh, but then I meet people who, and I, sometimes I hear people who I think fit into that category who have been at ear cam. And for me, they're just people who drank the ear cam uh -huh, Kool-Aid. Uh -huh. And then there are other people like this, where I had no idea you even mm -hmm. used uh, any, <laughs> anything that resembled ear cam mm -hmm. for all, for all I know, in uh, in in this piece we just listened to, y you sat down and your toys were not computer. Mm -hmm, your your, mm -hmm, your mm -hmm. toys were, you know, a couple contact bikes and some mallets and mm -hmm. the instrument. So I guess it's what you, I you know, I guess it's a a bad assumption to make about the place, and that it really it depends on what you can take out of it. Yeah, I yeah. I, I completely agree with that. Um, 
I think that in the end, Ircom is an institution and an institution is something that presents opportunities that you might or might not use. And if you can take advantage of them, then you can do great things that you couldn't have done before. If you somehow rely on it and expect it to give you the answers, then that maybe isn't the best approach. I, I think you could somehow look at an American university department in a similar way. It's another Absolutely. kind of Absolutely. institution yeah. which you can use to create really interesting creative or, or scholarly situations, or you can somehow uh, sit back and expect it to do things for you, in which case you might be disappointed. Yeah. And not to mention that I went, I, I met these people, all of them. I've never met, I never met them pre ear cam. I always met them post ear cam, mm -hmm. which means they could have been going into that institution saying to themselves, I want to learn how to write music like ear cam. Mm -hmm. In that case, of course, it's going to provide that for them, but it's not like there was something in them before that got killed by the place. Mm -hmm. It's that they wanted to, you know, learn how to do it, how sure, it's, could, you know, it's done at ear cam. Could be. And, in, you know, in which case there was probably end up sounding like that, whether they were there or not. Yeah. And of, I mean, of course, when I first got there, I was using the tools in a less intensive way. And I'm sure that some of the pieces that I did as my first projects sound a whole lot more like certain kinds of French electronic music stereotypes that, that people might have. But yeah, I don't think that it has to be that way. Okay. I think that's good. Cool. We've been talking for a while. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for doing this, huh? My pleasure. This was a nice conversation. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see.